Hello and welcome to Willosophy. I'm Will Anderson and look, it wouldn't be one of my podcasts without some sort of technical issue. So here's what happened. My guest today is Corinne Grant, as you've probably seen from the explanation as you downloaded this podcast. Uh, Corinne was amazing and I should mention that she is doing a show on Sunday at the Comedy Festival, which is why I'm putting up this one a little bit early. She's doing a show on Sunday with Stephen K. Amos. She's not performing as much publicly these days. So if you want to check out Corinne, you should definitely go on Sunday. It's the final day of the Comedy Festival. Uh, if you are hearing this, I imagine probably on a Saturday, if you've heard it, uh, if you're one of the first people to hear it, then uh, I have two shows today, 5.45 and uh, 9.15. I'm also appearing on Miss Itchy's show at 7 o'clock. And on Sunday is my final show, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival of Free Will. Uh, it is on at 8.15. There are still some tickets available to those shows. I'm really happy with the show. So please come out and see it. That'd be really cool. Let's have a huge last weekend. Um Look, so here's what happened. Um, I've been recording my show on uh, the same Zoom that I record this podcast on, and I obviously haven't been doing the podcast that regularly. Uh, so the Zoom is set on a level for recording the show and not on a level for recording a podcast, it turns out, I found out, after I recorded the podcast and could barely hear it. Now, I've done what I can do to make this uh, the volume here, and it's actually, you can hear the volume absolutely fine, but because of that, uh, there's a little hiss in the background. Now, I don't know how to get rid of the hiss there may be a way to get rid of the hiss but i don't have the time energy or expertise to work out that what that is i i've listened back and i think that uh you'll find the interview enjoyable and hopefully the hiss won't annoy you too much uh i like to think of it as ocean sounds in the background or something i don't know look there's a hiss but it's a really great interview and i think you're really going to enjoy it regardless and one day i'm going to learn how technology works and uh this won't be an issue anymore i need to put someone on it's hard to put someone on for a free podcast, but I need to put someone on. Hey, uh, by the way, I'll be in America next week. I'll be at Rooster Teeth Feathers for a week doing some shows there. I'm in Cleveland, coming to Cleveland. Uh, two weeks of shows at the Soho Theatre in uh, London the first week, two weeks of June, and a bunch of other gigs that I will tell you about at another time. All right, okay. Uh, look, thanks for listening. Sorry about, I think, well, anyway, well, I'm not going to apologize. It's fine. You're going to enjoy it fine. And uh, you're going to love the insights that Corinne gives. So uh, enjoy the podcast. Cheers. Hello and welcome to uh, Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. I explain this every time, but it's called Willosophy with Will Anderson because I know I still get messages from people who try to download the old one and they're like, the new episodes aren't coming up. They're not because they're not there. So don't go to Willosophy. Go to Willosophy with Will Anderson and I'm Will Anderson. So it's Willosophy with Will Anderson with Will Anderson technically. Anyway, I just told my guest I wasn't going to do a long intro, so let's not do a long intro. Uh, this has been one of my most requested guests on the podcast. I'm very excited to have her here because uh, it's somebody that I've known for, oh God, well, we'll get to that, but like 25 years, I guess, and uh, we haven't caught up in uh, ages. So this is going to be great for both of us as both a, a chat for you guys, but also a catch up for us. So I'm very excited. Uh, guest, who are you? I'm Corinne Grant. Uh, I'm a comedian and a writer and an actor and uh, a law student. Right. Now, see, that's – okay, so let's start with the last one and we'll move All to right. there. But I'll ask you this first. Do you have a philosophy? Are we going to talk about something today? Is there a philosophy that you do have? Look, I've got a philosophy, but I think it's, it's going to sound really wet 
Um, and I think there's a lot of holes that can be picked in it and be picked in it by myself as well. But my life philosophy is basically do more for other people than you do for yourself. Okay. Which does sound a bit Mother Teresa, but without the whole getting off on suffering and pain. Well, I think there's a balance and I think that's already an interesting thing to talk about yeah. because I think it's a nice philosophy. What, well, where do you think that came from for a start? I think that came from growing up in the country and having um, parents who always volunteered and did things for the local community and you sort of just had a sense that everyone mucked in. What, what sort of things did they do? Like as a kid, what was the first thing you kind of remember being aware of that your parents were contributing in some way that was, you know, beyond like, you know, what you are necess- necessarily yeah. meant to do? So dad was in Rotary, so that, which I know has got this real middle class kind of thing about it, but in the country really doesn't because there right. weren't a lot of middle class people in our town. Now, for people that don't know, Rotary's like a, what, it's a community organisation, like an Apex yeah. or a Lions Club or something, yeah, right? Yeah, but, but I think you have to be a business owner to be in, in Rotary. Rotary, which sounds pretty fancy. Yeah. My, my dad ran Corion Tire and Battery, right. so I don't know whether you'd get in doing that in the city or not. You might, might not, not get into the Melbourne enough. Club? <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I don't reckon you'd get into the Melbourne Club. No, <laughs> not at all. No. <coughs> Pardon me. Oh, yeah, I also have a cold, so that. Well, I don't think I do anymore, but I've still got a cough. That's the best. I uh, I got a cough in Brisbane. We're in Melbourne. It's the end of the festival here, so I've had a cough for about five weeks. I oh, got man. that one where, well, particularly because when you're like working a lot and you're studying a lot and working mm. as well, it's it's very hard to throw something. But particularly also when everybody else has got it, yeah, like exactly. it's going around. So the minute yeah. you don't have it anymore, you go and catch up with your friend who's just got it, and it's like, and you oh get no, it again. I'm back. Yep, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and when you use your voice a lot as well, it doesn't give it a chance to to fix itself and to heal. So. I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's just being 41. Maybe I've just caught being 41 and I've just I mean, got this cold for the yeah. rest of my life. It's like you're just going to cough <laughs> yeah. every now and again when you walk up some steps. Yeah. That's it, your life now. And you'll be able to hear my knees from 500 metres away. Oh, that is an interesting thing about getting older, isn't it? When you realise, oh, that pain's here. To yeah, stay. To stay. Not to go away. No, it's not going to get better. That is just it. That's what my leg feels like now. <laughs> That's what my leg feels like now. <laughs> yep, pretty much. I sprained a vertebrae in my neck last year. Uh-huh. What, doing what? Uh, from being 40 at oh, that yeah. stage, just from coughing too much. And, right. Oh, there you go. <laughs> oh, not only do you have a cough, but that coughing's going to put your neck out occasionally. <laughs> yeah. And that is just, this is what happens now. Yeah, I know. It's terrible, it's isn't it? Okay, so talk to me about the country. Talk to me about Rotary. Yeah. What was the and, – and I've got a bit of a theory on this, by the way, yep. which is that I think when you are in the country, by the necessity of being in a smaller community, if you go to that Hillary Clinton line of like it takes a you know, a village to raise a child, right? Yes. Uh, that's what the country is. Yeah. It takes a community to operate in a small community. Exactly. And everybody does know each other. Yeah. And if the football ground needs to be mowed or if the yeah. you know local church needs blood, blah, 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 or, yeah. you know, whatever. People come together to work together. Yeah. Whereas in a big city where all those things are already catered for. Yeah, that's right. You don't, you know, you can just call Jim's plumbing or Jim's, like yeah. instead of the country where you actually call Jim. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's like, you can't hide from it in the country yeah. either. If you don't contribute, everyone knows you're the asshole that doesn't contribute. So Which it's, is probably It's like forced good. benevolence. Yeah. I think it's good too. It, 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 you know, it makes you be a part of your community yeah. and you get a lot out of it. Although that being said, you said church fates. My dad was doing something at a church fate, like chopping wood or something like that, and he lost half a finger, which I think just 
completely blows religion out of the water. Right. Surely you can't be doing something for Jesus. And Jesus says, I'll take half a finger for that, thanks. Well, of all people, probably Jesus can. Because Jesus was willing to get stabbed in the side and nailed to a cross. Yeah. So, like, half I a finger. I think that makes him a little bit passive-aggressive then, doesn't it? Yeah, but, like, if, if Jesus had been offered on Good Friday, look, Jay, here's your <laughs> options for the rest of this weekend, mate. You can get nailed to a cross, stabbed in the side, and all your friends will deny you. Or you can lose half your pinky. I mean, I think... Yeah, but it wasn't Jesus's half a pinky. It was right. my dad's. It was your dad's. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did he ever regret that? Did he have a grudge against like the church no. or anything from then I'm on? I'm not even really sure that my dad was religious either. Right. It was just again one well, of those. That was probably, well, that was probably that probably proves there is a god. Was... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that was. We why. like what that you're working here and volunteering, but you're a freaking heathen. Yeah. So you know. Uh, okay, so I think the country does force that. You went to a yeah. rotary thing. Uh, what was the rotary thing that you went to? That you so that like- was my dad would always um, every year there'd be the Nariel Folk Festival, and listeners might might know that because it's been around for like forty, oh, probably fifty years now. Okay, massive hippie festival up in northeast Victoria. Thousands upon thousands of people would go to it. And we'd spend New Year's Eve there, and Dad would always be in the rotary van cooking sausages. Oh, so, yeah, right. And would you be in the van as well? Would you go in and help cook the sausages, or are you just no, at the fair? I was too little for that. Okay. Like, I wouldn't have been able to see over the counter. Okay, yeah. Okay. So, no, we just mucked around. Um, and how, how many people are were in Corion? Because we should set that scene. So, where oh, you've tiny. grown up, yeah, it's a little place. 1,100 people. Yeah. Yeah. So Hayfield, where like which was our nearest kind of town, was was twelve hundred people. So yeah. and like where I'm from is like four hundred and twenty one uh, census. I looked yeah. it up recently. Oh right. Yes. Yeah, My aim for the comedy festival down. is not to have an audience less than the population of the area. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good benchmark. Right. I like that. I'm like, if I can have more people in the room that were in the entire district in which I grew up, I feel like that's a good result. You've made it. Yeah. You've made it. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you grew up in the country. Did you like growing up in the country? I did until I was about 15 or yeah. 16. Before that, it was awesome. Like, it was like an Enid Blyton novel. We had a pine forest on a hill and right. we'd go up there and, you know, listen to fairies and all of that kind of stuff that you do when you're a kid and you've got a wild imagination. And that was great. Get on your bikes and just ride for miles and miles and miles. Throw cow shit at each other. That was always good fun. I don't know whether people on farms ever actually did that, but... Us townies. Oh, no, no. Oh, no, you throw cow shit at each other. (laughs) Oh, cow frisbee. Like, that's the best. Yeah. I mean, that's a. And this is the interesting thing, and I don't want to sound like, you know, two old people burn like when we were young. But (laughs) I I remember when we were doing the glass house, and uh, you and myself and Hughes, you all country kids. Yeah. Because the irony will always be we will get these like compliments like we were these like trendy inner city like lefty people. And I'm like, Corinne's from Coryong. I'm from like Denison, and Hughes is from Warnable. Yeah. But, you know, he was the big city guy. He was. <laughs> the three of us. He was the fancy one. Yeah, Dave Hughes, the hipster urbanite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what role do you think in being a creative person, having that time for imagination was? Because yeah. like these days, obviously, kids are constantly stimulated, like, you know, particularly yeah. in the cities. But I think probably everywhere now. Like, do you think that that, was, that played a role in your creativity? Absolutely. I had... Two best friends, Lara and Virginia, when I was in primary school, and we spent all of our time together making up ridiculous stories, writing stories together. We wrote a story for a local competition when we were about 10 called Gertrude the Witch, and it was disqualified for not being suitable for children. What? (laughs) (laughs) So our imaginations were fairly wild and perhaps a little risque. (laughs) 
That was like the childhood Fifty Shades of Grey. You guys were just before your time. We were. Must have been too many references to bums and poo and snot, I think. But okay. There is something about, you know what I reckon it's got to do with? This might sound really old person as well. I think it's got a lot to do with being able to see a horizon. Like, I get a little bit head up when I spend too long in the city because I can't see far enough okay. to think far enough. Does that make sense? Uh, it's interesting. They have done some studies on people's uh, minds and brains and how they work and our sense of, like, uh, perception and personal space. And apparently people from the country – and my, my dad's a classic example of this. If he comes to the city to go to, like, the sporting event or to come and see my show like he did yep. the other night, like, he immediately feels uncomfortable because there's too many people in yeah. the proximity. And basically what happens is you'll notice that people from the country greet each other from further away. Yes. So basically they'll, they'll lean into a handshake yeah. and they'll keep like as much distance between each other as possible. And they say that's because of the idea of what you're talking about. You Man, know, that took me a long time to get used to when I came down. Because I came down to Melbourne and I started an, um, a drama degree. So everyone hugs and kisses each other. Right. That was just not something... <laughs> We did, and I, it was real. I found it really violating for right, a while. Right now, I'm fine with it, but yeah, I just was used to my personal space was like had a paddock's width around it, and everybody's did. It's interesting, isn't it? How much of who we are and what we believe. Like we we talk about our political beliefs or our you know our moral beliefs as yeah. if they are absolutes and as if they should apply to everybody else absolutely. Whereas yeah. our personal experience and the way that we're brought up and where we grow up and all those yeah. things have such a bearing on the way that we. Like, because like you That's said, right. it's like your own morality or or ethics is a product of your own personality. Where it's not really, it is to some extent a product of your history. Right. And, and your environment. And what you're used to. Yeah. And it's why people fear outsiders because outsiders do things differently. And yeah. what if you found out if they were worse, but what if you found out if they were better? That's Either more challenging. Way, it challenges you, yeah. you know? I mean, you, you look at it with like things like immigration. You know, people are scared because these others are going to come in and they're, they're going to want their ways in our country. Yeah. But then at the same time, you're like, what would Australia be? Like, I haven't eaten... I haven't eaten an Australian meal this festival. No. You know, like, I mean, I what would this country look like if, you know, the Viet- Vietnamese or the Chinese or the Italians or the Greeks had not come to this country? See, that's a really interesting discussion that we should be having too because the argument is always they're going to come into our country and change our way of life. Yeah. But then you say, all right, well, what is your way of life? Identify your way of life. And the best answer that most people come up with is, oh, fair go. Yeah. Like, yeah, but what does that actually mean? If, right. if it was a fair go, wouldn't these people have a chance to come in here and have their way have a, of have life? Have a fair go. Have a fair go. I mean, exactly. I was – so where I'm staying here in the city, uh, we're about a block and a half away from uh, Spring Street where yeah. the parliament, the Victorian Parliament House is. So during this festival, a former Prime Minister of Australia, I'll explain for our overseas listeners, uh, his name was Malcolm Fraser. Mm. And he was an interesting person because he was the leader of the Conservative Party in Australia, which is called the Liberal Party, confusingly, but we can't get bogged down in the nonsense. The Labor Party is also called the Labor Party, but rarely represents the workers rather than big business (laughs) these days. But the Greens are probably still green. The Clive Palmer United Party is not particularly united. Many of these names are misleading, so let's not get bogged bogged down. down. But he was uh, the leader of a conservative party but during that time he also uh, had a pretty particularly vietnamese uh, refugees there was yeah. a time where a lot of them uh, came into australia and resettled here and he was a person who very interestingly well depending on which way you look at this argument some people argue that he didn't change the liberal party the conservative party got more conservative yeah and that's so be, how he I became left-wing or some people will argue that as he got older his views probably softened and he became a little bit more left-wing mm. either way 
his original party didn't want to have much to do with him and he became no. more of a lefty champion than a... Yeah, absolutely. Right, so a very interesting guy. But there was... Uh, on. I was walking down the street to my show and like the day after he died or two days after he died, there was this massive, like what I thought was a protest rally, but it wasn't. It was a candlelight vigil of all these Vietnamese refugees who yeah. had marched down the street and then were making speeches yeah. like about this guy. And I'm like, he was Prime Minister of our country. Mm. Now, whether you voted for him or not, none of us stopped and did fuck all. No, I like, know. I didn't have a candlelight vigil for him. I, didn't, I mean, I read the papers and I tried to, you know, acknowledge that, you know, he contributed to our country and all those sort of things. But I did fuck all. Th- these people, these yeah. people who came here on fucking boats to yeah. fuck up our country were ne- fucking it up by being respectful of this guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, you know. It and that's was- it. Like, he resettled 90,000 <laughs> Vietnamese in Australia. And I, I don't think it changed our way of life, apart from that we now get awesome Vietnamese food. I mean, the Vietnamese community is a wonderful part of this. Yeah, exactly. Community. And has added to our culture. It hasn't changed Absolutely. our way of life. No, we get to have all what we had yeah, plus, plus that. Yeah, that's right. I did this gig with um, Malcolm Fraser for the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, which is a, a group that advocates for asylum seekers and refugees in Australia to be treated humanely. Those and fat the, cat refugee lawyers. Yeah, yeah, those fat cat refugee lawyers yeah, who make millions out of uh, representing refugees for yeah. free. The refugee industry. Yeah, the refugee yeah, industry. All that pro bono work where they get to meet bono. That's what, <laughs> yeah, that's that's what, what it is. That is what the pro... Yeah. Oh, Jesus, if that's what it is, <laughs> I don't want to do any pro bono work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing some anti-bono work. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but if the beautiful thing was Malcolm got up and spoke and then after him, this woman who's now on the board of the ASRC got up and spoke and she was only in Australia directly because Malcolm Fraser had intervened and allowed her family to come to our country. So it was this beautiful bookending of of what he'd done and the products of that, which was this amazingly successful woman who, you know, all of those kids have gone on to be doctors and surgeons and she's an academic and, uh, in, you know, well-respected business person and is now humanitarian as well. Like, he did awesome stuff in that regard for Australia. Uh, it, one of the things I really did admire about him, and I will say this was, uh, and that I learned a little bit more about when he died, which was that uh, Gough Whitlam, uh, who was the Prime Minister that Malcolm Fraser essentially ousted in one of the more controversial moments in Australian political Basically history. Basically a coup without any blood being spilled. Yeah, and, it, 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 and it's like a famously controversial moment, mm. a, a moment that split people along political lines almost forever, you yeah. know, this moment. But these two men, as they became older, became... Friends. Friends, I know. And that to me is... I I just really, really was touched by that story. Like, I like the idea that even though they'd been through this terrible thing, they both kind of realised that they were both just trying to do the best. That's... That's, that's exactly They're what it is. They're both trying to do the best for the country. Yes. And they had that recognition that they had different ideas of what was best for the country, but they respected that they were both genuinely had At that heart, in mind. That's what they wanted yeah. to do. And I don't think politicians here in the UK, in the US, wherever you are, think like that anymore. It's all about ideology and what the party stands for, which appears to be what helps get them elected well but that is what it is yeah i mean it's it's hard not to sound cynical when we start talking about these sort of things but look we're jumping all over the place but seeing we're here i I might as well talk about this because politics and you are interesting to me because it feels like politics has been a bit of your life or at least an interest in politics so tell me where you got interested in politics and where that came from and sort of how that developed so potted history i was um because we're old enough that especially the dismissal when um, Fraser got rid of Gough Whitlam, wasn't that 
far removed from our childhood, so it was still really fresh in our parents' memories. So I was doing, I think it was my year 11 or year 12 history project on Gough Whitlam, I yep. decided. And I was going to write a paper on what a dickhead Gough Whitlam was and how he deserved to go. Oh. And then I started doing all of this research and reading. I went, oh, actually, oh, this is a massive travesty of justice. Obviously, I didn't use that phrase because I was 17. But that was what changed my politics and gave me an idea after reading all of these books and stuff about Gough Whitlam and his idea of social justice. I understood what social justice was uh. then and that. Your place in the world does mean more than just looking after yourself. There is a community to look after, and that community includes people you've never met that are doing it tougher than you, and you've got a responsibility to help make sure that they can be the best they can be as well. Okay, that's interesting to me, because that kind of draws a direct line in between what you originally said, you know, is yeah. your philosophy, and what I guess is like, you know, you could more broadly describe as your political philosophy. Yes. They seem like they are an extension of the same thought. Yeah, exactly. So there was no sort of, because this is the interesting thing when it comes to politics is, as well, is that... It is genuinely about philosophy. There probably is no yeah. one correct way for us to run the world. There's a bunch of different exactly. ideas. And like people are saying, well, this is our idea. And, and we're going, well, we think we have a better idea. Well, politics at its best should be that. Unfortunately, yeah. what it tends to be these days is uh, we've got an idea. And the other one's like, well, your idea is fucked. I and know. what's your idea? No, we don't have one. We're, our idea is that their idea is fucked. You know what's boring too is that back in the day, <laughs> back in the day, um, but you know, 10 or 20 years ago, individual politicians within a party could still have individual opinions, whereas now everyone has the same speaking points and yes. everyone says the same thing and it's freaking boring and it's dishonest too because half of them, you know, are selling a line that they think is bullshit themselves. No wonder no one wants to vote for them. Interesting. So let me uh, ask you this question. Uh, so the other day online I had a discussion with a person. I wouldn't say an argument because, like, I wasn't arguing with this person right. i just had a disagreement with this person and I'll, I'll run you through what happened and uh, and just give me what your opinion is am i counseling is. you here will no 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 did this anyone is... call anyone else a poo head was no there was right? no poo heads no no it never got like that uh here's what happened uh bill shorten uh, who is uh the leader of the labor party yeah uh the opposition uh we had just re uh, the government that they had g gone together with the government basically they had agreed with the government to pass a raft of uh, metadata laws yes. to spy on the citizens of australia yes. add an extra cost to everybody's internet like essentially to uh, make us all pay a tax so that our government can spy on us now the reason they tell us that they're doing this is you know to stop terrorism and criminals and stuff but here's the thing if you are a terrorist or a criminal here's what you can do you can pay $30 to set up a VPN and send all your emails on web-based emails or you can just use Gmail right the government can't no like it's the easiest thing so here's what will happen uh, everyone who's not a criminal won't do anything and the government will have all your information and anyone yeah. who is a criminal will go offline into these other places and do that. Yeah. It's a completely ridiculous thing to do and any decent opposition would have stood up yes, they would have. against it. And so I tweeted about that. I said basically something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, but the, the, I said, hey, Bill Shorten, uh, you know, when's the lab I thought you would know where a spine is. It's where you stabbed your two previous leaders. Right? Right. I thought that was a pretty nice little joke because he is an undermining terrible person. But anyway. <laughs> but this guy who was a lefty uh, tweeted and he said, I like Will Anderson, but I'm sick of progressives having a go at the progressive side of politics. You know, we have to all be on the same team. So, what? Okay. Okay. Let me. I think, I, I think I'm probably going to be right. aligning with you here. I'll, you. Let, I'll shut up and let you finish. So. 
basically my argument, and I won't run through each step of it, but basically what I said to him was, I said, no, 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 no. I think you have to call out, you, if you believe in something, you call out anyone who's exhibiting that behavior, right? Yes. Like you don't just choose a side because there's no point being on the side of this if they're just going to do the exact same terrible things. It's not things. football. No. It's not football. It's really not. If I am anti-refugees being treated terribly in asylum camps and both sides are doing it, yeah. I can't just pick one side and go, yeah, but I like these guys so they can do it. If yeah. I think that gay people or yeah, that there should be a marriage equality in Australia and the Labor Party won't bring it in when they're in Parliament, then I'm going to criticise that yes. because I believe in that. I'm not picking a side. But secondly, if we don't demand this of our politicians, if we don't demand them, if we let them run small target campaigns, when they get into power, they can do whatever they want. Yeah. You know, because we haven't, you know, heard what they're going to do and we haven't examined it and they will just change their mind. Anyway, this guy was, I mean, we had like, it was just a debate. It wasn't like a, you know, but I just find that is a terrible way for us to play politics. I I think it's our own fault if we let people get away with it. That weird idea that you can't criticise anyone and it does seem to come more from the left side as well as you can't criticize anyone else in the in the left because they're just trying to do the right thing right well i'm not 100 percent sure that they are always trying to do the right thing and if they are trying to do the right thing then they needed to be pointed in the right direction occasionally right otherwise it becomes an echo chamber where the only thing you're echoing is bullshit right and so that's yeah okay so that's interesting to me because i i think both of us probably describe our politics as being progressive, yeah. right? Yes, is that what, how, yeah. well? I'm not going to tell you how to describe yours. That's how I describe mine. Yeah, mostly progressive, like I would say. How would you identify yourself politically, if you would? It, it, Look, I don't know. I've always been a Labor voter, and I have always supported the Labor Party to the extent that I have worked for the yeah. Labor Party. Um, that stops before the last election, though, uh, where the latest, the most recent raft of asylum seeker laws that we have in place now were started by that government and that was that was just a bridge too far for me. Yep. So I'm a political refugee now. I don't quite <laughs> know where I sit. Yep. I don't sit 100% with the Greens because for me, I, I like the ideology in some ways, but it's, it's easy to be that idealistic when you don't actually have to implement anything. Sure. And I think also sometimes the Greens tend to uh, have policies that are all well and good if you can afford them, but they don't take into consideration working-class people or disadvantaged people who can't afford them. One of the more interesting things I think the Greens have been doing in Australia, and I hope it's the direction they will kind of, you know, follow, because I'm a classic example of that, the, 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 the thing that people hate about Greens voters. Like, I'm the classic example of the person like, you live in the inner city in some rich body electorate and you can afford to, you know, vote Green yeah. because you, you can afford to just be idealistic and not, like, you know, yeah, have to make... Yeah, you people shit me. Yeah, right. But I am that person and yeah. I understand that I'm that yeah, person yeah, yeah. and I bring that to the table. But I absolutely agree with you when it comes to the Greens that that is also the problem with the yeah. Greens. And one of the more interesting things I've seen, because my family are obviously farmers and they mm. vote national yep. all the time, right? Because farmers vote national. But yeah. here's the thing. The National Party in Australia <gasps> aren't doing anything good for country no. people anymore. Oh, my like, God. A wet tissue could do more than the National th- Party. This is a, a, a government that voted against a, like a national broadband network. Now, wh- whatever technology yeah. you think it should be or whatever, here's the one thing that we can all agree on if you honestly think that every Australian should have equal opportunity to things. That if you put in a decent internet system into the country, 
Yeah. Then people would a move to the country, flock to the country because yes. people want to live in the country. Yeah, they do. And if you have high speed internet and you can get people out there cheaply into those communities, yep. they will be boom towns again because there are so many places across Australia that you would fucking live in in a minute if you had a business that you could just do online. Yeah. And then you could like be out there. Yeah. I mean, but secondly, for farmers, it would have been a massive boom. And here's what the Greens are starting to do. The Greens are actually in some ways the natural party of the. The country, but they've always worked against farmers and people like that because they're scared of anyone cutting down a fucking tree. Well, yeah, because they always <coughs> they work in absolutes, which yeah. doesn't help them at all. There's got to be some more nuanced position. I absolutely agree with you, and I feel like at the moment, and this is something I hope that they will pursue more of. They seem to be doing that thing of going, "Hey, actually, farmers and us, we're on the same page." Yeah, what we both want. Because farmers want the land to be great as well. Because the only way they can continue... Farmers are concerned about climate change. Yeah. This is, again... You know, they, they're voting for a party at the moment that's yeah. voting against us, you know, fixing climate change. And the very first people, the people who know it's happening, who can't deny it, no matter how much they read an Andrew Bolt column, yeah. are the fucking farmers who that's are like, right. why is it still sunny in May? It used yeah, to be exactly. raining by now. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> like, they can't be like, this is a left-wing conspiracy. So I think the Greens have been described as the conscience of the ALP, which I'm sure both the ALP and the Greens would hate because they really, I think the Greens and the ALP hate each other more than the ALP. ALP and the Liberal Party do yep. for all kinds of historical reasons. But in a lot of ways, they are the missing link or the part of the ALP that has either been silenced or pushed out of the party now. Right. And that, I think, is a great shame too. I just think, I, I just think we are not served as an, as a, an electorate when, when the big parties try to be too much like each other. Yeah, like, I know they all go for that middle Australia sort That's of... That's why like, they like each other, because they keep going for this theoretical, imaginative, Im- imaginary middle ground. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, I'm interested in what you said about working for the ALP, because I think it's... Yeah. Particularly because you're an entertainer. Yeah. Like, did you ever worry about, like, aligning yourselves or working, like, working with, like, one side of politics over the other? Did that ever occur to you? Was it even a concern of yours? No. I, I think... Back in 2001, I started being a refugee advocate and quite a public refugee advocate and a few people warned me if I did that that I would start losing work. And for me, I thought, well, if I do, I do because this is a cause that I can't shut up about. And I didn't lose any work. Right. Like nothing changed. And then after that, I got involved in the union movement and again, nothing changed. And then I got involved with... I've never... I haven't been a member of the Labor Party since I was 19. Um... I stopped that in 2001. I just didn't renew my membership after the Tampa, which was a big uh, refugee crisis that happened in Australia. Um, Never renewed my membership, but continued to vote for them and always went with the belief that I would rather them being in than the the Liberal Party. Now I'm not so sure because I can't, like you said, see an awful lot of difference between them on a lot of their policies and... The, Although um, the Liberal Party are trying to make the, there a difference by just being even more terrible than you could t- possibly expect in any way. Yeah. Like what I thought at the start was, oh, my God, there won't be any difference. I think that's why people in some ways voted like for the Liberal Party this yeah. time. Because even people who were like natural Labor voters were like, these guys have done such a terrible job and betrayed so many of the things we thought they stood for. Then is it really going to be that much worse? Oh, Turns out it's going to be yeah. heaps worse. Like heaps worse. <laughs> It's like going, the hangover three can't be that bad. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> really? You know what shoots me about Abbott too is it's not just he's such a, an ideological freaking nut job. It's that he's incompetent too. Uh-huh. He can't even be a right-wing fascist well. Although 
I understand what you're saying, but I do think about this a little that I sometimes think it's great that they're incompetent. I mean, at the end of the day, even though you don't want an incompetent government in charge, like we've seen all the things that they wanted to do. Their first budget, all the sort of things they've tried to bring in, all the things that they have unsuccessfully not been able to bring in. Imagine if they were good at their job. All those things would be in. They would be part of our system now. Yeah, thank like we God would have a system that is penalising the poor and most vulnerable instead yeah, of yeah. the people who should they should be going after to yeah. pay what their fair share, right? The yeah. fair go, right? So, in some ways, you know, like it, it, things thank would have God gone better for the war <laughs> if like Hitler had just been, you know, not very punctual or poor at public yeah, speaking. Right. <laughs> If he if he hadn't had such groovy hair and groovy right. facial hair, and he and was, that was just what fucking good in front of a crowd, you know, was, you, you know, can get was, a lot of. She was through. an entertainer, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you never saw Hitler eating a raw onion, did you? Tony Abbott, all the qualities of Hitler except for the charisma. <laughs> 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 that should be their next election campaign poster. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, that's interesting to me. It's interesting that, you know, refugees have come up again. That's that idea of looking after someone. Because, again, okay, yeah. uh, uh, why refugees? Of all the people who are vulnerable, and it's a question I get asked sometimes yep. as well when I am supportive of like that or talk about it. You know, even in my show, when I was doing my political show at the festival, I probably had about 10 minutes of that talking about, you mm. know, our approach to refugees. And, and, you know, I could even feel it in the room. There's some people just going, why do you care so much about this? Yeah. And I'm not even sure I know why. Why do you think you care so much? I care about it because, and also I think it's important too to say that just because I care about refugees does not mean that I do not care about anything no, else. No, no, like, it does. There is no... It means you don't care about homeless people in Australia. I don't, this is where, yeah, these are the arguments that yep. get thrown at you that all of a sudden, you know, you, you can only care for one thing at once, which I think shows a, a great lack of imagination if that is all you're capable of doing. But for me, the asylum seeker refugee debate and the way that we treat those people is the worst thing that we are doing. They are the most vulnerable people in the world. They have nowhere else to go. Their country has kicked them out or they've left in fear of their lives and they have nothing and they desperately need help. And those are the people that we've chosen to attack. Like They are completely defenceless and helpless and begging for our help and yet we're kicking them. That to me says an awful lot about our country and it, none, none of what it says is good. And but, if, you, but if you, Corinne, you can't fix that, you can't fix anything else. I read in the paper today that Australia is the most expensive place to live in the world because we're doing so well. So we can't afford to have these people coming here. Yeah. It's this small this, amount of vulnerable people. This gets back to my richest. philosophy of do more for others than you would for yourself. After you've taken care of your basic needs, right? I'm not saying you know, be some kind of martyr who doesn't sleep and gives up all of your clothes and your food and everything. Like, look after yourself first. Right, but, but, it, then- is, but it is one of those things where y- you're absolutely right. They always attack that one. Like, you know, the, the argument they will go yeah. to is like, oh, well, what, there's homeless people here who could do with that money. Yeah. Yes. Right, and, and Carl Sanderlands gets paid $3 million a year. Yeah. So, look, what we're saying is the money's all out of whack all over the place, Yeah, guys. that's right. So, I'm just going to concentrate on this area right now. Yeah. And, you know. But also, we would have more uh, money to help homeless people in Australia if we weren't spending literally billions of dollars to keep these people on offshore detention facilities. $500,000 a year per person, they yes. say. Yes, it's, it's billions. To keep them there. Yeah, 
like to keep them in this place that the UN has accused us of torturing people, that the Human yeah. Rights Commission have accused us of torturing people, yeah. that Save the Children have accused us of torturing people. But we all know those fucking organisations. I mean, come on, mate. This is Australia. We're not in favour of Uniting Nations giving you Saving Children. You know what? That is such or, a bullshit argument too. I'm not going to be dictated to by the United Nations. Yeah. Well, you were the one who signed the Sign treaty, up. dickhead. We're on, like you can't sign we're on panels. Yeah. Like, we are literally on, like, we're running shit at the United Nations. We don't play by these rules. It's like... You started fucking Fight Club. And now you're yeah. telling everyone about Fight Club. It's like going down to Maya and putting a TV on lay-by yeah. and then Maya sends you a bill saying your next 50 bucks is due and you're just saying, I'm not going to be dictated to by Maya. Maya. Well, you're the one who said, I'm going to sign up for this. So we're yeah. on all of these, like, for... 50 or 60 years we've been on all of these treaties and conventions saying we won't be assholes to vulnerable people. Right. And now we're going, yeah, but um, we want to be because it wins us votes. And that's essentially what it is. We're wasting billions of dollars. This is the same country that was at the forefront of the boycotts against South Africa. Yeah. We, uh, people who uh, might not oh, remember this. We still this. lecture Syria and Egypt in their human rights abuses and China while we're doing worse things here. Right. It's insane. Yes. Like, you know, the countries that are being lectured to by the UN for torturing people are those countries. Yeah. They're South Africa in the 80s and, and now us. Yes. To the point where our Prime Minister is sick of being lectured. Yeah. That's how much we're being lectured. Yeah. That he's sick of being lectured. Well, now, most know, of us see an obvious solution yeah. to that. Stop torturing children. Yeah. But he's like, no, just stop lecturing me. Yeah. Let's just keep doing it because I might win some votes out of it. You know what? I genuinely don't think most Australians know what's going on and don't care and I don't think that it sways their vote. Well, I think all. that's I, – I think what they've realised really well, and they're smart about it and I think they're right, is that Australians, like in a general sense, stop the votes – not our problem anymore, right? Yeah. If you stop the boats and we're not hearing about it, because the truth is the boats haven't stopped. Let's, no, they let's haven't. Let's be completely they're honest about that. They're just being turned that. around. The, yeah, they're turning around the boats. This idea that they're so concerned about, like, and this is the new thing, and it's been very clever. They've reframed the argument a little. Uh, no, we're saving lives. It's about deaths at sea. Well, if you're honestly serious about that, you wouldn't be turning around no. rickety boats in the middle of the ocean. Like, Even and but secondly, we just bought ten Vietnamese fishing boats to take people back. We're still having to expand these detention centres. Yeah. So where are those people coming from? Yeah, exactly. I don't think we've stopped the boats. And this is like even if you. But are, we've stopped hearing, and that's what people wanted. Yeah, and and that's that's exactly it because you know these people <laughs> are going to come to our country and steal our houses and eat our babies apparently. Yeah, I was going to keep talking, and then I lost my train of thought. <laughs> okay. I was just grabbing a water, so I may have, to, uh, I may have distracted. Uh, okay, so this is an interesting point. It costs us so much money. Yeah. $500,000 a year to torture these children. $500,000 a year for these people to be... Per person we're talking per about. Per person. Yeah, yeah. So it's billions upon billions of dollars. Like, I mean, I don't know how much it costs us to come here and be part of the community and help us build our country. Uh, an awful lot. Like Julian Burnside, who's a human rights lawyer, has done some maths on that, and it costs something like $3,000 a week. To house a refugee in the community, I could be making that statistic up, but it's it is phenomenally less money. And you give them work rights, and then they work, and then they pay taxes as well. So it's kind of a win-win for everybody. You just end up with a few more brown people in your community, right. and really, you know, we should be able to cope with that. Yeah, that is probably the major issue, though. At the end yes, of the day, let's it really be honest. Is. 
Uh, it's a very interesting uh, moment in our history and I can't help but thinking uh, that we're making decisions at the moment that we are going to have public apologies for in oh, the future. Oh, absolutely. Like this feels to me like, you know, when you look at something like the apologies of the stolen generation, mm. you look at go and you go, how could we be these people? And then you look at what we're doing now and you're like, oh, fuck, we're doing it again. Yeah, we really are doing it again. Well, people here are frothing at the mouth going, we can't afford them. We're battlers. We're struggling. No, just because you want a 64-inch television and you can't afford it does not mean you're struggling. Well, the other thing is also, though, but the, the politicians and the mainstream media have done a very good job of convincing people that the reason they don't have what they want is because the person won below them on the rung rather than the people yeah. 50 above them on the rung. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's interesting to me that a man who gets a $900 million tax rebate from the Australian government for basically some accounting and yeah. spends $30 million a year loss on the Australian newspaper every year to pollute the Australian <laughs> population with his lies. Yeah. Um, I mean, I always uh, the thing I always like to explain to people about the Australian is loses thirty million dollars a year the Australian right so and it has the most like right wing conservative you know clearly you know wanting to be influential views if if someone came now to Australia and said hey uh, I'm new in the country like a Clive Palmer type you know yeah. comes into Australia and is like here's my idea uh, I'm just going to set up a newspaper. Uh, it's going to lose $30 million a year. Uh, I just want to get my opinions that I have directly to the politicians and influence their policies so that I can get large financial dividends like a $900 million uh, rebate for doing nothing other than some paperwork. We would be like, uh, no crazy billionaire from Superman. Like, you can't do that, right? It's a crazy idea that in a democracy we let one voice, one power. Yeah. Like, and have, like can't argue that it's operating as a business. Literally doing it to influence because government. Because no one freaking reads The Australian either. No. Apart from other people in the media who then report on what was said in The Australian. If they stopped reporting on it, no one would know what was written in The Australian. Because a lot of it... It's like... Um, it's like the worst of the Tea Party. Like you read those columns, they don't even logically make sense. Oh, they start it's the best. at one point no, and then it's it's like a stream of consciousness of just craziness. I honestly believe there's a cut and paste feature yeah. at the Australian where they just like, oh, I'm three paragraphs short. Uh, lefty, lefty, lefty conspiracy, ABC, yeah. climate change, lefty conspiracy. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's. I mean, it's crazy. I shouldn't even probably you know talk about it so much, but I think that. What those newspapers and all those things have do a lot is say, please don't look at us up here ripping you offline, yeah. being the reason that not everybody can afford everything. Look at yep. the people who are below you and even more vulnerable and blame them. And that's what, that was the point I was going to make about the asylum th seeker thing when I lost my train of thought was even if you do think that these people deserve to be locked up over, uh, you know, on islands off the coast. Let's just say for a second that they do deserve to be punished, that they deserve to be locked up, all yeah. of those kind of things. I mean, things. why can't they stay in places like Iraq and Syria? Yeah, exactly. That's right. Just say you believe all yeah. of that. At the same time, are you really comfortable with your government lying to you about how much it's spending and lying to you about the success of the campaign? Like, surely, you know, Australians don't like being bullshitted to and you've got a government that is like the worst bullshitters of all time. That should shit you. I mean, when the Human Rights Commission report came out and all they did was attack the person yeah. who put out the report rather than at any time addressing anything it that was so in the childish. fucking... It looks so childish. It looks so childish. They're like, childish. it's biased. You, you mean this report that is equally mad at both you and the previous government? Yeah. Yeah, it's biased in, in favour of the children, yeah. I guess. Well, they didn't know who it was biased in, in favour of because they didn't read it. Yeah. Ian MacDonald, who was heading the inquiry 
into Gillian Triggs hadn't read it and said he wasn't going to because he'd heard it was biased. He got paid $22,000 to front that committee. Right. And he didn't read the freaking report. Yeah, that's money we could have spent I would have got sacked up. if I did that. Imagine, <laughs> you know, you had a job and you came and you said, right. have you, have you uh, analysed that report? Nah, no. heard it was biased. Oh, we're not going to pay you for that. Oh, what do you mean you're not going to pay me What do you mean? No. Um, I'm awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Is that oh. your answer? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. my answer. I'm awesome. <laughs> all right. We can't bang on about this all day. So, uh, But, you know, that was nice. It was good to talk about that. I think it's important. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, tell me. Uh, we, we're jumping around all over the place, but that's fun. I like that. So, what I really wanted to start with was you, you talked about being a comedian. You talked about being a writer. You talked about being an actor. But yep. you also, at the end, said you're studying law. And that yeah. will probably be, for people who don't follow things closely, the most interesting one because less people probably know that's the case, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's been going for ages now. Oh, my God, it feels like forever, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's only been three years. I'm in my third year now. And that still – that comes out of um, my strong belief in, belief in social justice and wanting to do more for my community and uh, for the people around me as well. I just got to a point where I was emceeing rallies or um, – facilitating panels and all I could really do was comment on things. I couldn't actually stick my fingers into the world and change it myself. Uh-huh. And so that's why I decided to do a law degree so that I could start practically making a difference to things. So well. that is, so what is your, okay, a couple of things. What's your aim with the law degree? What would you like to do when you have it? That's the first yeah. step. Well, ultimately work in the, that social justice area, which, you know, if it's, you start getting boring and technical about that, but there's a number of different ways you could do that. So, you know, I've always been involved in the union movement. So employment law, for example, on the side of uh, workers and helping them to make sure that they're getting all of their entitlements and that kind of thing. Human rights law, refugee law, which, um, as we all know, you make millions out millions. of. So I'm going to do that because I'm going to be really rich. Right. Yeah, I want a yacht and I want to meet Bono. Yeah. So that's what I want to do. Um, no, the human rights law is the kind of thing that you do on the side because you don't get paid for it mm. nine times out of ten. Um, it's like going back to comedy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Except one that, good corporate gig, yeah. and then all my arty shit on the side yeah, that doesn't right. pay for itself. <laughs> Except the chance, you know, you've got the slim chance that you might save someone's life. Um, so that's really cool. And then just other social justice issues in amongst that, you know, women's violence, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, entertainment law interests me as well because you know, performers get ripped off a lot. Yeah, that is true. They get I mean, ripped off an awful. We one. joke a little bit about the comedy thing, and I it always amuses me a little bit about that. We live in a world where I would fight for everybody's right to get paid for what they do, but I still like when I see people complaining for not getting paid for comedy or not getting paid yeah. for like you know writing gigs early on or whatever. Yeah. I'm like, well, that's just how it works. And then I'm like, oh, I've been brainwashed. Yeah. Even me, I'm like, well, that's just how it fucking works. And I understand that. Like even today on Twitter, I was posting details about my podcast and some dude, and it happens every now and again. And I've been plugging, I've been plugging a lot on Twitter at, lately because I'm obviously doing a lot of shows and you yeah. have less time to write jokes and yeah, you know, more things to plug. And this guy's like, uh, oh, when did the jokes come or whatever? And I was like, you know, I've just uh, posted like t- two whole bits of free content for you. Like, you know, yeah. this the whole thing, like, you know, I'm like. And why am I justifying this? I know, you don't have to I'm justify. a professional. But I'm like, oh, well, I just did this whole free podcast and I just did this like... I know. That, that, but that's like the mindset of performers, I think, a lot as well. I don't want to get self-indulgent and talk about performers for too long. But 
We do, and it, you see it. Time if there's and again, a place to be self-indulgent, as a podcast. Sweet, that which, is by the point. way, I do for fucking free. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just getting out my tiny violin for you. Will. <laughs> um, now I've lost my train of thought again. What was uh, I saying? Performers working oh, with performers. Yeah, that there is this sense, especially you see it a lot amongst actors as well, that you do it for the love of it. Yeah. And which you do, but of that course. doesn't mean you shouldn't get paid for it. Paediatricians do it for the love of it as well. Vets do it for the love of it. It's still a profession. You still have skills. You still deserve, like everybody else does, to get paid for yeah. your work. As a general rule, I understand that like a lot of artistic communities and small productions and all those sort of things don't happen. If, if there's a choice between you getting paid and the event actually existing, yeah. then that's fine. But if there's someone in the process who's making some money yes. and the performers who are actually making the product aren't that getting paid, point. that's the point. Yeah. Up until that point, I yeah. have no problem with like, oh yeah, well this, I mean when I do gigs around town, like you know, during yeah, the festival yeah, yeah. rooms or whatever, they might even try to pay me because they might have some money, yeah, but I'm always but like, you, you know what, it. yeah. it's not, put no. it back into the room, that's what yeah, this is for, right? right? And but, you and I don't need that money either. No, but if you're doing some big do. thing where like you're like, oh everybody's making money out of this, but they're like, oh can you come and host for free? You're like, no. That's no, yeah, I understand what you mean. I had a falling out with one group that I was an ambassador for once where I did a, an MC, a big thing for them that went, it was televised mm. and it was sponsored by a very large company and they paid everybody else in that room and essentially got an hour and a half of free advertising for themselves on the television right. as well. And the only people they didn't play with the pay were the performers and I just refused to do anything for that group ever since then. It's amazing, isn't it, that on a night like that, they'd never think of not paying the caterers. No, that's right. Or the techs or anybody else. But you're you're also ripping off the audience as well because the audience thinks, oh, isn't that great big company being so benevolent? Right. No, that great big company is pretty much just paid for a lot of free advertising and not paid a whole lot of performers to advertise their product for them for free. Yeah, it's... it. it, there is a lot of stuff going on like that in the in yeah. entertainment world. More so now than what it was 20 years ago as well, I think. Like when we started out, we were mucking around on our own and doing our own things. We weren't, there weren't the opportunities to exploit us like there is now, I don't think. Absolutely. So let's go back to that then. Let's uh, go back to – well, let's go back to when we first met. I think that's a nice story and yeah. we can talk about that first and then we can kind of – so how uh, – well, tell me how you remember it. Uh, this is when we were 17. Yeah. We're doing Lions Youth of the Year quest. Another, uh, like, a, like a rotary, another community yes, organisation. that's right. And I had made it to the state final, I think. Yep. Um, and Will had won the state final the year before. Yes. So he was back there as the winner. So that was very exciting. And basically the way that the uh, night worked was that because when you guys did all your speeches and stuff, when they went off to judge... While the judges were coming up with their judgment, I, the previous year's winner would come and yeah. do a speech just to fill in the time. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember what my speech was on? No, tell oh. me. Oh, no, tell me. Go. Yeah. This is, this will show you how far I've changed as well. Uh-huh. My speech was on how feminism has gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that. Oh, my God. I know. That's the best. I know. Do you still have that? Oh, I don't know. I don't uh, know. If you I've still had that, that somewhere. And read it out loud. Well, you, what you should do also is you should like, I mean, it'd be a great, if you're ever going to write a book or anything that is a, along those sort of themes and like, yeah. you know, your ideas, being able to like, you know, 
like have that speech as a starting point yes. for where you then went on and what things yeah. you discovered about the world and what your opinions are now and how because here's the thing when we change our opinions I often find that we do things gradually so we don't realise it's like if someone's yeah. lost a lot of weight but they've lost it gradually but you haven't seen them for like mm. eight months or whatever and you're suddenly like oh my god you've lost a lot of weight right but to them they're like oh yeah maybe I've lost a bit but because yeah. they've been doing it gradually and I think that's what you find it to be like with those sort of opinions is that yep. you kind of think ah oh, no I've always been like a feminist but what you realize if you went back and started looking at you know things you said or things that you believed or whatever that you change your mind sort of constantly and you can end up a long way away from where you started yes and what i remember from that what's interesting is what i remember from that is my teacher carolyn grubb was there and she said to me afterwards she was distinctly unimpressed (laughs) when i didn't understand why because i had people rolling in the aisles like it was very funny yeah we're pretty sure it was horrendously sexist and probably borderline misogynist i mean but but these days where you'd be like well you read your crowd yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it probably was a real crowd blazer. Yeah. Because, like, the way that that Lions used to the year thing worked was all the, like, you know, the regionals and the semis yeah. or whatever are all at Lions clubs, yeah. which are predominantly men. Main. So yeah. you're getting up there as a young, sassy woman doing a speech about how feminism has gone. I mean, you were probably their favourite. They probably yeah. wanted to book you every year. They were like, fuck this competition. Let's get that girl back. Made it to the state final, bitches. <laughs> But, but Carolyn Grubb said to me, with, I'll never forget the, the look on her face, and she just very gently said to me, I think you'll find as you get older that your perspective may change. Oh. And some, for some reason that did stick with me, and I can remember thinking, I don't know what I've done wrong, but obviously I've done something wrong. What a... I'll need to get her on the podcast. That's a good philosophy. Yeah. I, that's a nice thing to be able to say to someone. Very gentle thing to say to right. someone who was clearly 17 years old, had no life experience whatsoever and had said something fairly freaking idiotic. I think that that is because... I made it to a state final doing it. Often we... Uh, I think that uh, the way that our debate uh, operates in public at the moment, that we don't go forward very much because all we do yeah. is shout at each other from the extremes. And I think a lot of the time, you know, and you see it online and all those sort of places as well, you know, people go straight to the opposite straight away and we never find any common ground. Whereas I think that's a really interesting way of a teacher saying something to you. It's not saying you're wrong or you're going to, but just that sort of planting that seed of, I feel like you'll realise that what you're saying right now is idiotic. (laughs) (laughs) I hope. I hope that you will. Hopefully she's proud of the fact that I'm now a massive feminist. I'm I'm always very interested in, in wondering what those things are about what I think now and I always try to examine all my positions through the prism of knowing that there were things I said 10 years ago that I would not say now or that I think are ridiculous that I you know thought them like or 15 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever um and I know that there must be some now there are some things that I believe passionately now that five or ten years from now I will look back at me now and go you fucking idiot I know I will listen to this podcast (laughs) in ten years time and just go oh my god oh my god I hate me yeah oh when you've gone back to being uh, the the (laughs) anti-feminist Yeah, when I've gone full circle. Right. You've done that late in career thing where you, you've done like what Dennis Miller did in American comedy and just become the right-wing comedian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's my aim in life, to become a right-wing comedian. Yeah, she's like Janet Albrechtson with jokes. <laughs> Jesus, what a horrible thing to say to someone. <laughs> so 
so yeah, that was um, that was where we met. And what I remember most about that was I was so impressed with you because you seemed so worldly and you knew where the Hi-Fi Club was and you knew that Colette was playing that night and you could get us in for free. I was too chicken to go though because I was scared that my mum might find out. I think I was also wearing a hand-knitted jumper with flowers on it. So I do remember that you had a jumper with flowers. Yeah. Uh, I was pretty country. Yeah, and yeah, Hi-Fi Bar, which ironically is still... The place that the comedians have the yeah. after parties at the festival. So it's just down the road from here. Not that I go there anymore. Uh, I avoid that place. Yeah, I, me too. It's like Groundhog Day. Yeah, I can't go. You I walk can't. in there and it's like you never left it from 10 years previous. Same conversations, same people, same vibe. Yeah. It's horrendous. Yeah. But yeah, that's right. And Colette singing Ring My Bell yes. at the Hi-Fi. So that was the last time I saw you until yeah. maybe five years later. Yeah, I'm that'd be about guessing. right. And I was at the SB, uh, and I just maybe I just started comedy. I think had done a couple of gigs, and you were on stage. And I thought, oh, I don't know what to do about this. Do I tell him that I know him? Or that by that stage, saying that when you're about 22 and you're very image conscious, kind of saying that you met at a Lions Youth of the Year quest <laughs> yeah. in the country would have been really freaking uncool. Yeah. So it was quite some time before I built up the nerve to tell you. And then I kind of am blank then on how we ended up becoming. Good mates, because we did after that point. I feel like you told. I, I, I have a memory of you telling me, and this may not be right, but this is my memory. It was at. A, a, was it called the Empress of? Well, no. What was that tiny little? It was like a little bar. Jed used to run a little gig out the back there, and it was on like uh, Nicholson Street. It was, or no, like it wasn't somewhere the Empress, like, but no, yeah, was no. it called Nicholson's even? I know. I know which pub you're but talking yeah, about. But it was though. this tiny little one, yeah. and I remember that night. I mean, that's my memory, but I can't remember exactly. But yeah, and then we ended up like working together heaps, like when yeah. uh, you know when we were running little shows together and sort of yep. mucking around. So, what are your memories of like first starting doing comedy in Melbourne? Because this is my twentieth year now of doing comedy, and uh, so I reflect a little. And coming to this festival yeah. every year, you know, it kind of it forces you to reflect a little. Yeah, you know, the very nature of it. Um, and how much it's changed, and yes. you know that now it's a very big business. I know, and a very big business, and you know, kids are getting into it with an eye to it being you know their life and their business and their yeah. And employment I've got views on that as well. Well, what I, are your views on that? Well, I'm I interested. think that's blanding out comedy a lot. Like when we started out, um, we might have had ideas of wanting to make a living out of being performers, but uh-huh. I don't think we ever had. There wasn't that set goal of I'm going to have a podcast which will lead to a YouTube show which will lead to me hosting my own television show. There wasn't any of that. We just came up with stuff that made each other laugh and then we'd put it on stage. A lot of, you know, in that show, I can't even remember what it was called. We did it at the Builder's Arms. Show Pony. Show Pony. Because a lot of it was me um, taking the piss out of you and telling you that you were up yourself. (laughs) I was a great person to have as a friend. I'm a charming person. Um, but that was us just mucking around yeah. with no eye on anything apart from mucking around. Yeah. And it was what made us laugh was what made other people laugh because we were genuinely enjoying it and we were just thankful for the opportunity to be able to do that. I think if I was starting off now where I had some idea of what a comedian should be, it would be very different. I think you could become far more pigeonholed and what kind of personality you're going to have as a comedian can be quite stultified by that. It just blends out. There's a lot I of think that also is an interesting thing and I, I do think about this a lot because sometimes I'm jealous. Sometimes I'm jealous of the kids of today because I'm like, well, if I started today 
And like, you know, now there's all, and like, not that I've not had my fair share of opportunities. I've been very lucky. Yeah. But um, there is part of me that's like, if you started today, there are so many opportunities. If you're good at this, you can conquer the fucking world at this now. And you can do it everywhere. Right. I don't know. Let me finish and then please tell me everything you think about this. But, and I also think with podcasts and things like that, I'm like, oh, it would have been good to know that everybody dies on stage. Or it would have been good to know that everyone's had that time when someone accused them of this or did that or yeah. these stories you hear. But then the other thing, and to go back to that teacher, and this is why I loved what she said so much, sometimes when you're hearing these things or you can hear them and you can know that this is a thing, but until you experience it anyway. Yep. Like somebody asked me for advice the other day and I said, just don't make your mistakes as quick as you can. Because you, you're never putting off making mis- – well, you're only putting off making mistakes as a performer. Yeah. You're only delaying making yeah, the mistakes. Yeah. Because if you want to get good, you have to make the mistakes. Exactly, that's You have right. to work out who you are. And the more you try to avoid getting in those situations, what you end up becoming, to go back to your point, is you become bland. Yeah. The mistakes are what make you interesting. And I think these days people know how to avoid so many mistakes yeah. that they, they don't make them. And then if you're bland, you're replaceable. And so you say, you know, you might have had more opportunities today, but I'm not 100% sure that's true. When we started out, comedy was still for ugly people. It's true. Like, it really was for ugly no, people. No, that is true. And you were very good looking. Were. You still are, love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You still are, Nah, fair love. enough. No, I get it. <laughs> Like, I, you'll notice my posters aren't pictures of me anymore. They're drawings. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I can ease into my mid-40s. I seriously cannot get through a conversation <laughs> with anyone without insulting them. It is impossible for me to do it. I am just, uh, I am an asshole. You'll be a good lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. But I remember quite distinctly you getting a lot of shit from a lot of people, including, including the indie mags, basically because you were pretty. Okay, yeah. And sure. that was, that was on, on one level, really unfair on you. But on another level, it helped you stand out. Whereas now, there's a lot of pretty boys in comedy. Yeah, Love, true. If you were standing out now, you would be one of that group. You wouldn't and have I, done all of those rough gigs. Remember right. those gigs we did in the, in the snow where they were playing darts right beside our heads? Yeah, I remember it fondly, that trip. It was... Uh, <laughs> Speaking of free gigs, we, we, I don't think we were getting paid, but we got, we got free paid skiing, and skiing, yeah, and, and drinking, accommodation and drinking. So um, uh, it was you and myself, and yep. if I remember correctly, Joe Stanley was on that trip. It was uh, Joe Stanley? No, um, Jody J Hill. Yes, Jody J Hill was on that trip. Yep, and they were working together. Uh, no, yeah, they, no, they were uh, anyway. I don't know why I've confused those two. Dave Hughes was definitely on that yep. trip and because Rose. he had. Borrowed Thomas, Thomas Bromhead's mum's ski outfit. It was this lavender three-quarter thing. And to this day, the funniest <laughs> thing, like Dave Hughes, one of the all-time greatest comedians this country has produced, but he has never done anything funnier than that day <laughs> of him skiing in that three-quarter lavender. Because Hughes is also so fucking determined. So even though he couldn't ski, he, couldn't ski. he would not stop. It was the best. This is how this is how shallow I am again. I don't know whether I've ever told you this or told Husey or no, I might as well say it to the whole world no. now. I had a massive crush on Husey at that stage. Ooh. And then I saw him in the left lavender. lavender. <laughs> <laughs> And he couldn't ski. That's how shallow I ever went. Oh no, that's not for me. No, not no. at all. No, Whereas I don't think I was ever for him anyway. That bit I have I hadn't contemplated in my mind well, that at doesn't all. Matter. That you take. don't need to contemplate those things back then. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah then so Duff Rove. and Rove. Was and it Duff and Rove? Rove? Yeah, it was Duff and Rove. Yeah. 
It's the only time I've ever seen Rove properly furious. Like a vein was popping on his forehead. (laughs) It was a horrible kid. I remember, because basically what had happened was it was in a bar. So I imagine there was a stage in in corner on one half of the bar, but then the bar was in the middle and then there was another half of the room where people were playing pool and being at the snow and drinking and whatever. And then right near the stage, there was a darts board. Yes. And during the show, they did not stop playing darts. darts. So people are throwing darts like really fucking close. To where we're doing this show that yes. no one's really listening to. Yes. We should also point out this is <laughs> like this is well before we'd done any television or anything like that. Oh no, yeah, it was when D- Rove was still in the duo, Duff yeah, and Rove. That's right. Yeah. Where he still wore novelty vests yeah. with Daffy Duck on them and stuff. We would have been like twenty three, twenty four. Twenty four probably. Yeah, twenty four. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh no, I agree with what you're saying. Like I mean, I think part that's of That's how you get match fit. That's how you yeah. learn your craft. But I also think that some of that um what you, you, I mean I think there's a lot of really interesting comedy, maybe more interesting comedy than there's ever been because of uh, the influences that people are able to access from overseas. They don't just yeah. have to follow the people in the scene, they can follow other scenes. But there's also and here's what I I, I think is absolutely right. If I come through now there are certain opportunities if you look a certain way or if you have a certain presenting style or whatever that you would just get safely funneled into yep. and you would never have that opportunity. You would be hosting a game show right. now, Will. Yeah, I mean, but you're right. That's the, the career path that would be easier to do. Yep. Yeah. You, 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 yeah. Or, and this is not a, 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 a – what I'm about to say is it will sound like I'm insulting Joel Creasy. I'm not in any way. But like you'd end up on I'm a celebrity, get me out of here too – Breakthrough to that like yeah. next level of you know that Which would be you your play opportunity. It well, um, that can and work I, for you. And by the and way, I think it does and I Joel. think with Joel it will. Yeah, I mean, I think with Joel it already has. Yeah, because yeah. I think Joel A is funny enough. Yep. Like, well, I think the advantage that Joel had on that show is he's 24 years old and he wasn't really a celebrity. Like yeah. everybody else on the show, it's kind of like. I used to be a celebrity and now I'm doing this. Where he's the one who's like, oh no, we've brought him in as the fresh new talent who we know is going to be funny and he did well on the show and he was funny. Yeah. And then he can just you know, parlay that out into the rest of his career. Yeah, that's right. But it will mean that he, that's, that's the way. And, but what Joel wants to do is like interview celebrities and do a Graham Norton style show. Yeah, and, that's right. So it's a perfect so, path. Yes. But, but for I, you, you wouldn't yeah. have been the comedian you are now. You wouldn't have no, you're done right. the things you've done now. It does send you on a different path. Yeah. Okay, so you started out doing comedy. You hadn't really necessarily like had some big dream of being a comedian, though, no. had you? No, I know. I'd wanted to be an actor and a performer and I started out doing stand-up comedy as an acting exercise because you could get up on stage, you could have really tightly scripted material and you would have to deliver it as if it was completely off the cuff. That's a really good acting exercise. And then I kept doing it because you didn't need a set, you didn't need a director, you didn't need rights for a play, you didn't need anybody else. You could just do it on your own and you got paid 50 bucks cash in hand. It was a pretty sweet thing to be doing when you were at uni. So I just kind of fell into it. And then I met all of you guys and then it was just fun. It was just so much fun. We were just mucking around. Uh, so tell me what's the first time you did something that like people started to know about? Like, you know, when did you st- first start to notice that people kind of were aware of you? What do you feel like was that breakthrough moment? Was there something? Yeah, it, no, it must have happened by increments, I think. So we did Rove first on Channel 9, which yeah. was a late night show. And I was always nervous about how that might change things and whether I'd get recognised or not. And I wasn't which was great because I really am not a celebrity. I don't like the idea of celebrity. And I would go into Channel 9 and they'd say, we want you to wear this. And I'd go, that is size 8. (laughs) 
And they go, this is all we have. And I went, well, the reality of it is that's not going to fit me. But I did do half a show in Kerry-Ann Kennelly's dressing gown because there were no other pants to fit me after I'd got everything I was wearing wet from doing something stupid. So I was, you know, right from the start, I was kicking it to the system, man, by refusing to stop eating for a long period of time. Um, I wasn't exactly a big girl either. Right. You know, I, I was pretty skinny. I was probably a size 10. Yeah. But even that was you know, controversially big. <laughs> but it gives you an insight into what Australian television looked like. Yeah. And this is the interesting thing for me. I've been talking about... And thankfully, trying... for some reason, it never occurred to me that I should become that. I just went, oh, I don't fit into any of their clothes. That's a bit stupid. I'll just bring my own pants. That was my solution for I it. mean, I, I think in some ways there's nothing worse than a comedian who gets really fit. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. A com- like, if you're fit already... Like, if that's what yeah. you are, fine. If you're skinny already, if you're big yep. already, if you're whatever. But there's something about a comedian that goes... Because the comedian's got to have that sense of like, no, I'm happy with who I am, how I am. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. The minute You've got to be the goes, every person. And the minute someone goes for a change, you're like, oh, I don't know. The comedy doesn't quite work. I mean, people could obviously yeah. pull it off and whatever. And But it, it is one of those things where I'm like, I, I, yeah. I, I think as a comedian, always just make the decision to... I never, and I did, I was really conscious of that. So I was probably only halfway through the first season of Rove on Channel 10, where it was in prime time, that I started to get recognised. And then I did struggle with that a little bit because what it reminded me of was growing up in a small country town. Uh Like all of a sudden everybody knew me and knew my business, whereas I had really enjoyed when I first came down to the city being anonymous. Right. So talk talk about the anonymity. Did you use the anonymity to recreate yourself, uh, do you think? Or was there bits of you that you wanted to leave behind? Was there bits of you that you found hard to leave behind? Uh, What what did you like about the anonymity of the city after the country? Just that... People have a firm idea of who you are in the country because you've grown up with them. Uh So you you can't really change. And I guess I had sort of developed a sort of a a right-wing progressive approach to my politics, which is not something that would have interested most people in my town. And I was more interested in academic pursuits than in sport, which again was not something that I was going to find an awful lot of friends who would share those same interests in the country. So it was lovely to be able to move down to the city and be able to be a nerd. But I also did work very hard on changing the way I spoke. Oh, really? Yep. I speak a lot more quickly now and I speak with a, a lower voice and I don't tend to go up on the end. So I, if I went back home, I tend to talk more... Uh, <laughs> so I had an old boyfriend. You remember Kevin? Kevin used to freak out because when I got on the phone and talked to my parents, like, oh, yeah, g'day, hi, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, no, we'll be up next weekend. Yep, yep, yep. See you then. Country voice. Again, country so it would, it would freak Kevin out. He'd just go, you've got two different people. You're two different people. You Country Korean and city Korean. I mean, I definitely have, like, when I'm around my country friends or when I'm around my family, I definitely start, like, just a lot less moving my mouth. Yes. Like, everything gets yeah, a yeah. little, you know, drier and slurrier and whatever. And sometimes I can fall into that, like, in, in the city and people. Like, particularly when I'm overseas, if yeah. I start talking like the country kid I actually am, people are just like, are you talking in a, I can't understand what you're talking about. I spent four months in France and the only way I could be understood was if I spoke to people like this. Right. They could not understand me if I used an Australian accent. <laughs> I don't know what accent that is because I'm shit at accents. It's some kind right. of pretendy English one. No, that's a good. That's a like a good, just like you know, middle European accent. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I am well travelled and learnt English from a tape. 
Essentially, you, you, that's the GPS voice. Yeah, You've that's got the right. standard, what, yeah. won't offend any country, very clear yeah, speaking yeah. GPS yeah, voice. Yeah, yeah, Because I heard my Australian voice um, reflected back to me where I had said, say the word was pace, like you've mm. got to keep pace. And my French friend, friend said, what, what is this word, pace? Oh, I thought, yeah, oh right. my God, that's how I sound. I, I think I'm saying pace, but to him, he hears pice, which is such a, an Australian sound. I went, oh, oh, I hate the sound of my own voice now. So they would speak like this for the entire time that I am there. It's interesting to me. I, uh, the going back to the country thing and how you immediately go back into, like, I mean, it, yeah. In some ways, when you go back to those places, it's much too... I mean, you take a lot of the new you with you, but yeah. you just let some of the old you come back because it's easier and it doesn't... Yeah. Uh, but also, it sounds condescending. Like it, it always used to shit me a little bit too when um, people who'd moved to the city came back to Koryong and wanted everybody to know how much they'd changed. Yeah. Just, you just go, just like, be yourself. One of the greatest experiences I had would have been, speaking of when did I realise that I was... Um, you know, had a, a profile, was going back to Koryong and forgetting all of that because I'm just at home mm. and seeing this guy called Kelsey that I'd gone to school with and now worked at the butchers and because I'm hopelessly sentimental as well as being an asshole, I'm a very complicated person. Right. Um, said to <laughs> Kelsey, oh my God, I haven't seen you in years. How are you? And Kelsey said, yeah, I'm all right. Uh, how'd a dickhead like you get on the television? And my answer that was like, I don't know, I guess through being a dickhead. I just like bang, back down to earth. Like, right. don't care who you are. You're back home now? No, I mean, I don't... It wasn't meant in a nasty way. It was just like, how did a dickhead like you get on the television? People always ask me if I, if I do shows back in Sale, and I used to, and I sell really well down there because mm. obviously I'm from there, but I don't go there and do shows anymore because I can't. No. Because the shows aren't for people who know me, and they aren't for yeah. people who know my dad or know my mum or no. whatever. They're for strangers, and they're prepared yeah. for strangers yep. to entertain strangers. That's a, Yes, that's exactly it. That's why I... I've done one and it was a speech up in Corrigan and I've never been so nervous in my life because you're right, you don't do comedy for the people that know you, you do it for strangers. That's why it's weird. Like people always ask if you like, you know, your partner will come to shows or if you're like family. Mm. And my, all those sort of people probably come once a year. They'll come and see the show as a thing. Yeah. But they will always never enjoy it as much as strangers will enjoy yeah, exactly. it. exactly. Because they know you and they know that like, you know, you're not what you're saying you are there. That that's a version of you, yeah. but that's a, it's a performance. Yeah, and it's not prepared for people who know you. No, exactly. Yeah, like people who know you look at the people who are enjoying it and they put them off because the yeah. people who know you are like, why do you like this so much? Yeah, <laughs> he's I, a dickhead. I, I have this not... dickhead all the time. Yeah. He won't stop watching. <laughs> I'm like, I'm trying to talk to him and he's there watching uh, that stupid... What is that lawyer show I've been watching? It, I can't even remember what it's called, but I've become obsessed Which one? With is it. it American or it's English? It's an American lawyer show. And it's like a... Oh, it's called The Good Wife. Have you ever seen oh, that show? No, I thought it looked stupid, so I never watched it. I, I've just done what Ian McDonald did with the, with the Asylum yeah, Seeker report. I thought it looked stupid, so I didn't read it. Yeah, but uh, no, the only difference is you weren't getting paid $22,000 to review it. No, that's true, so. that's true. <laughs> <laughs> if that was your review yeah. on the radio, when you were, if you were on, at the movies, you were the new yeah. host of At The Movies, and they go, and Kareem, what did you think? Oh, no, nah, I thought it looked stupid. So, <laughs> so I didn't watch it. didn't watch it. <laughs> One and a half stars, I guess. I'm absolutely the same as you. We have both been guilty of uh, judging a book by its cover, so yeah. to speak, because I was the same as you. I'm it looked like, a bit soap opery. Absolutely, yeah. Karen, right? And look, it is a little bit soap opery, but 
It's mostly fucking great. You know all those people who say to you, hey, you should watch The Good Wife. It's better than you think yeah. it is. Turns out they're right. Right. And so then, because I've just been writing and I've been constantly writing, I like to have, like, I'll often have just a show, like, on the go. It keeps me kind of yeah, at the yeah, desk or yeah. whatever. So I've watched 160 episodes of The Good Wife in the last six weeks. Wow. And now... I like now it's hit mid season. I've got to that point because I've w- oh I watched no. six seasons. You're suffering with But now we're symptoms. mid the season, so now I have to wait a week between every fucking episode. Oh no. So one downloaded the you other day. You should yourself, Will. Everyone was like, "What are you doing tonight?" And I'm like, "I'm watching the good you one." You knew this moment was coming. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't oh. read ahead. <laughs> oh. See, I I don't watch a lot of lawyer shows, but the one that I'm watching at the moment is Better Call Saul. Oh, okay. And that, obviously, so that's, that's the, the sort kind of lawyer. Of, that, that's yeah. the kind of lawyer I want to be. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tell me then, uh, you start doing Rove. Yep. You go back to Coryong. Uh, when does Glasshouse come along? Is that a year after that or two years after that? I think it was a year after we were on <coughs> Channel 10. It wasn't very long. It wasn't very long at all that the Glasshouse came along. And that was, that was great because that was – Rove on Channel 9 was a really different experience. We were still kids – who were just mucking around and all of a sudden we had a budget and we didn't really know how to take it seriously. I don't don't think it really occurred to me I was on national television until the first night we were sitting there and someone said, and nine, ten, eight, and they were counting it down. I went, oh, oh God, I'm on national television. Up until that point, I don't know what was going on in my head. It hadn't occurred to me. We would get costumes. We pretty soon realised that they would give us a budget for anything, so we put explosions and everything. We wrote sketches in German just so we could say we wanted to translate (laughs) It was outrageous. No wonder they didn't renew us and we had to move to Channel 10. Channel 10 didn't take any of that shit from us. We had to behave ourselves and and work hard. But that was a fun show. But The Glass House came along at a a good time for me because as fun as Rove was, it's light entertainment. So a lot of my um, political beliefs and so forth couldn't be expressed on that show because it's not the platform for it. Not because anyone was censoring me. But because if I'd started banging on about refugees or the Liberal Party or the Labor Party on that show, the audience would have gone, I didn't come to watch this show for that. I came to it just to be entertained. I'm always surprised how little people understand that. Yeah. I'm always surprised at how little people will understand that when you're like on a show, Mm. that you are part of a team. Yes. Like, it, you can be the host of the show, but you still are playing a role. Yeah. And, like, you're not necessarily going to be able to express everything you want to express no. or every part of, like... Because that's not the purpose of the show. Also, I mean, look, I've, I, over the years, have had to host a few shows. Mm. If I had had, my, like, my choice, and this is such a weird thing, to, but I never would have wanted to host the show. The host is the boring job. Like, it's yeah. not... That's not un, that's no, unfair. there's a whole but lot of But there's a whole bunch of shit things. that comes with yeah. being the host that, like... But people never seem to notice that and I think it's really interesting of course it wasn't a time or place for you to be doing those things it was not what that show was about no and I definitely wasn't censored in any way either it just wasn't that kind of show but that meant that all of that stuff that I did want to do I had no voice for so when the glass house came along I could express that voice so I I had the best of both worlds I could be on Rove where I got to be basically an utter dickhead and I really enjoy that because I am an utter dickhead and then the glass house where I got to, you know, express my opinions a little bit more. I think that's an interesting thing as well. Um, often uh, people will be critical uh, of, well, I don't know if even it's critical, but I will find it sometimes where people will be like, you know, 
that you can't be those two things at yeah. the same time. Did you like? I mean, that's an interesting thing to me. Yeah, Look, there are some things I love just being a dickhead. Like it doesn't always have to be serious banging no. on about this shit. Like sometimes it's just fun to be a dickhead. And, you know, on my other podcast, you know, we'll just fucking talk about Batman or whatever and be a dickhead. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that I also don't have serious things that I want to talk about yeah. as well. It can become even more difficult when you're a woman as well because when you do something that is just plain funny, all of a sudden you're a bimbo and an airhead and you uh-huh. couldn't possibly understand anything complex. Yeah, okay. So talk to me about that a little bit more. Well, I still get that now. What would you know? You're an airhead. This is the, you know, this is the, she's a female comedian. What would she know? And it's always prefaced with the female bit because male comedians, it just seems to be um, a given that they are very witty and very smart. Whereas female comedians, it seems to be a given that they're very fluffy and very light even though when you see them on stage men and female comedians are basically doing the same thing it's just that one has a dick and one doesn't that's pretty much it right but it's how it's perceived by an audience irrespective of what you're doing or saying on stage i've I've spoken about this before on the podcast but i I will say it again beck hill who's a fabulous australian comedian who's now based in the uk uh sent out a tweet that i just love one day and they said uh journalists ask uh, what's it like to be a female comedian it's exactly like being a male comedian except you get asked this question more like that's i mean it's exactly well she's more polite than me because my answer (laughs) you you might find this hard to believe um but my answer to that question is when someone says what's it like being a female comedian i say awful i wish i hadn't chopped my dick off Okay, now I'll be quoting both next time. <laughs> I'll start with Bex and I'll close on yours. Like, oh. <laughs> I, know, I was called surly and ungrateful, I think, by one gossip reporter who asked me that question. I gave her that answer. It's probably a, like, even, like, even us talking about it is probably boring to go into this area. But it's something that I've been, when you talk about, you know, y- your beliefs. And so I'll talk about it from my point of view. Yeah. So, if I'm going to be on stage talking about uh, feminism, and the reason that yeah. I, I feel like I'm talking about it in the moment is, like, firstly, what I want to acknowledge is the last thing that, you know, women need to hear more for, of is, like, white guys telling them how they should think about feminism. So that yeah, is yeah. not my position. All I'm talking about is going, I'm hearing a lot of voices from women that I respect saying, hey, you need to make a place for us in your world. Yeah. And I think that that is an appropriate thing to do. So I want to go, well, well how do we do that, right? Yeah. But... The way you do it is you've got to start and look at your own world. Yes. Part of what I'm doing on this podcast, and people have heard me talk about this uh, previously, is when I first started, I was just interviewing whoever I could get in, in a way. But one of the things I was doing is like, if I'm going to do an interview, if uh, uh, like a show where I ask people about their philosophies and I say, these are interesting people that I think have interesting things to share, mm. then I should try to make it like, you know, a representative sample of men and women. So what I try to yeah. do with this now is we have a male guest, a female guest, you know, and we, and we swap it around. It's a very small thing that I can do. But with my other podcasts, I haven't got those numbers up yet because of the nature of comedy in the community. Yeah. And in the comedy community, uh, we work in, I work in an industry, you work in an industry that is male-dominated in a way yeah. that if it was, you know, most other industries, people would yeah. look at and go, the fuck is going on with your industry to the point where i mean there's rare industries i'm sure there are other examples but there are rare industries where people question whether like like people in comedy say that women can't be funny there's rare other industries like i I mean i'm sure there's some sexism in law but i bet there's not people going women can't be lawyers oh hell yeah there are there is okay good (laughs) okay i feel better about that oh yeah (laughs) yeah 
I'm going out of the frying pan into the fire. Okay. Yeah, it's not much okay. better. Okay. All right. Think. Okay. Well, that that uh, I'm I'm sad to hear that for you, but it comforts me. <laughs> yeah. Women are too emotional to be lawyers, didn't you? Oh, know that? is that right? Yeah. It's like the running the country thing. You're gonna. Yep. Uh, yeah. Okay. You're going to get your period and someone will end up in jail. Right. Something like that. I'm yeah, not okay. quite sure how that works. No, no, no. I yeah. see. I see how that would work. Yeah. You're like, he is guilty. Oh, shit. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry. So sorry. It's just that time of the month. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly how it works. Uh, even on Ellie McBeal, that didn't happen. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, though, especially with, I think, with panel shows as well. Look, and I know QI has copped a lot of flack for not having enough women mm-hmm. on its show. But for the most part, panel shows are hosted by men. Yep. And more often than not, even if they have two women on there, there's still three men yep. on there. Correct. And men, just by the nature of how they've been brought up, are more likely to uh, speak without being spoken to first, not wait to jump, be given permission to jump in, will then tend to direct their conversations to the other men, not because they're sexist, but, I mean, it is sexism, but it's so subconscious that it's not recognised as such. It can be really hard as a woman to be able to jump in there and join in, and I think a lot of women are intimidated and don't want to get involved in that because it's too easy to look timid or come off looking bad or come off looking like all of the things that you get accused of being before you get on the show to do it. You know what uh, I mean? I, I, so one, there's less it, women I think doing it. Is like, two, there's less women who are willing to do I it. I think comedy is like that as well. It, you, well. At least used to be yeah. very much like that. That idea that you know men would be around riffing. You know, everyone's riffing. Yeah. And you know, look, I was certainly one of those people as well. That's what you do. That's yeah. Like, but it's not a. That's not a female-friendly environment no. generally. You know. Um, so. The panel thing's a really interesting one to me because I do a panel show where the three regulars are all men. And uh, and it, it's a panel show about an industry that is dominated by men. Yeah. So, again, when you're looking for guests. But I, it is one of those things where we have two seats. Uh, so, we try to – I mean, we've always, we always have a woman on the show. But if you have a woman, that's still going to be four men and yeah. one woman. If both of our guests are women, the most it can ever be is three men. And two women. Yep. Those two women are the guests, not the regulars. Yep. So like you said, not only do they have that issue of, you know, that they're not as you know, used to, but, but the most comfortable people on that panel are also the men. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's their yeah. home ground. Yeah, yeah. Like they know That's how right. things work. Yeah. So it is something that we definitely like talk and think and try our best to work on, but also can work harder on those things. But it is something that I think it's good to be aware of. But I think yeah. there was times, you know, definitely when we were doing Glasshouse and stuff where I wasn't even aware of that or not, or not aware of it enough to go, this is something that we should be. I mean, we were always, you know, I think reasonably female friendly, but I look yeah. back and think we probably could have even been Done doing more, more you yeah. know. And without like big noting it as well, like Q&A, the Australian political show yeah. has twice none now done female shows, the second time they got a female to host it as yeah. well. But both times, the shows have made such a big freaking deal about it being all female. And then the only things these women were asked about were lady things. Yeah, that's the thing that, that shits, shits me. shits me. It massively shits just me. Just have a pa- – don't have a specialist women's panel. No. Just one week have, have an all-female female panel and, and talk it. about the same shit yes. that you talk about every other week. 
That's how. Because when how it's an all male panel, you don't go, it's all male week. No. And <laughs> you, we, go, you go, it's the footy show. Hello. Yeah, that's welcome right. to the footy show. We're not just going to talk about being male because, yeah, it would right. be the footy show. Yeah. And then one of them would dress up like a woman and we'd all laugh. <laughs> Look at her. She doesn't know anything about footy. She's probably got her period. Yeah, exactly. Lost that law case and yeah. can't tell a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yuck, yuck, yuck. Uh, so what, what are your memories of that period, the, gla- the glass house period? I love that. That was the most fun I ever had in comedy, I think. I think because maybe it's because we all came from the country as well. There was just this great unspoken camaraderie between the three of us and that show just worked really well because we never had to second guess each other. We always knew when someone had thrown a ball up in the air without thinking how they were going to catch it, <laughs> which was often. And I think Will, uh, Will, Dave and I had a look, of, a specific look of panic in our eyes that we would recognise in the other and we would... Like, it just worked really well together. It was a dream job. I loved it. It was interesting, wasn't it? Because it, it was... I mean, I think part of it was that uh, none of us really knew what we were doing. Like, none no. of us had really... We were thrown in the deep end. Yep. Like, you know, in a way of just going, here's your show. Yeah. And uh, it, and we were also in an environment with some people who knew what they were doing, the Good Newsweek crew and all yeah. that sort of thing, who'd done great shows. But at the same time, we're a bit like, well, you know, you also, what do you guys want to do? Yeah. Which, you know, probably. Which was amazing. Amazing. Probably wasn't sensible, but it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, we were at the crazy ABC. We were moved all over the schedule. Yep. And, you know, we were making two episodes a week of a topical news show and then having two weeks off and all these crazy things that yeah. it was. Uh, but it was a it was a pretty amazing experience to have. Like I mean, you know, to do two hundred nearly two hundred and twenty episodes of that. Is that how many show. we did? Wow. Yeah. Gosh. Oh yeah, it was uh, okay. It was an amazing time. How do you feel? Do you remember? People always love to hear about this. Uh, do you remember when it got axed and how you felt? And do you have any memories of that time? Yeah, that was. Um, it was a mixture of gutting. And just angry as well because there was no rhyme or reason to it. And then just being somewhat embarrassed because it made it became such a big deal. It like became a, the, the prime minister had to come out and say that he had not influenced the axing of the show. The prime minister of the country, yes, put out a press release. It was, and that I found mortifying. I sat next to John Howard on a plane. Oh, I sat next to Peter Costello. <laughs> Your story will be more interesting than mine. I'm sure. I was. Uh, uh, if people have heard my other podcasts, they've heard this, but I, I will tell you because I think you will enjoy this. So for overseas listeners, uh, as Corinne mentioned, there was some speculation when our show got cancelled because it was rating the best it ever rated. In fact, our final show had over a million viewers on a Wednesday night on the ABC, which is now a number that they would uh, would make it the most popular show on the ABC on a Wednesday yeah. night. But back then, television was different and numbers were bigger and all that sort of thing. But we'd had our most successful season ever of the show. It was flying along and it got cancelled. Now, it turns out, Chances are, it was. A, these things are never as exciting as what people no, think exactly, they are. That's it's right. always some boring behind-the-scenes thing about budgets, or someone's yeah. pissed off someone, or yeah, yeah. someone's had a wrong argument with the wrong person, or whatever. And we were certainly a show that caused trouble. Uh, I do love though that the most complaints the ABC has ever got is when they found out that the Glass House was being cancelled, even more than the Chasers Make a Wish. Oh, really? so, <laughs> We're still ahead. Julian Morrow, Julian Morrow told me about that, and I'm proud of that. But um, there was a lot of speculation because we did a lot of like you know stuff about the government that the government had got involved and put pressure on. And at the time, none of us really thought that was no. true. Um, 
but people would ask and we also did not have an explanation for why the show was going off air so like you would just say to people well we're rating the best we've ever done and it's going well we yeah, don't i we mean don't we honestly know. don't know it's probably not that but we honestly don't know and people when they hear that go oh well it's definitely that yeah then. exactly that's right <laughs> that was the first time i ever realized that by do not like i wrote a thing for the daily telegraph because i like it was yeah such a big story the telegraph yeah. asked me to write a thing about it and the whole piece do not like the whole piece is like look the, the, the Prime Minister doesn't cancel shows. We, there's yeah, nothing yeah. we know about the Prime Minister cancelling shows. And that just He's proved a, it. Oh, it proved it. Like, then people are now determined yeah, yeah. that it was like... So, anyway, all these years later, I uh, have been doing a show in Darwin. And uh, Tom Ballard, the Australian comedian, and I, he'd been doing support for me. And we went to Darwin's only gay nightclub, which is called Throb. Brilliant. And uh, imaginative. We had a great time at Throb. Uh, we got our photo taken with some girls on their hens night who also had a giant life size, well, not life size, human size, <laughs> imaginary penis. Uh, not imaginary penis, inflatable penis. What Have a, you ever seen a penis before? It Will? was a life size imaginary penis. <laughs> no, it was a human size inflatable penis. Right, yeah. Because uh, I just realised that like a normal size inflatable penis Would is be. a weird thing to take around on your hen's night. Yep. So Pretty we got much. our photo taken with this giant inflatable cock and it was in the Northern Territory News. Brilliant. So anyway, next day I get to the airport and I am... A little worse for wear, oh, Like lot, a lot worse than a little worse <laughs> from wear. And like I don't like to vomit uh, ever, but also in public, no. Yeah. And I vomited four times outside that dark because it was so hot. Like oh, it was 40 yeah. degrees and it was like humid <laughs> and I just felt like terrible. And we drank yeah. at this like nightclub. We've been getting free drinks and shots of things that had colours in them. Oh, and, God. You know, yes. all the no, wrong. No, it's all horrible. Just, oh. And that morning I'd had, because the flight was like at maybe like one. So I'd had to check out of my hotel. So I went and laid by the pool and I don't think that had been a good idea either <laughs> but anyway so I've got to the airport I'm sick I'm sick but I'm getting towards the flight time so I'm like I better get in I go into the lounge I start cleaning up they've upgraded me I'm like oh brilliant that's exactly what I needed today right but I'm in like 1B and in 1A is John Howard former Prime Minister of Australia oh, Jesus Christ like a man that I've said probably as many terrible things publicly as anybody yeah. has said about this guy. Yeah. You know, not all of them things that I thought. Some things other people wrote and I just said. But, <laughs> yeah. but I said them. Yeah. They all came out of my mouth. He, it was the show that he had to put the press release out about. Yeah, that's right. And now I'm sitting next to him, the worst I've ever felt in my entire life, right? So, and by the way, he... He's just a cute old man now. Like, I'm not saying that that makes up for any of the things he's done and I'm not saying that he doesn't have evil thoughts in here. <laughs> yeah, I'm just right. saying if you're sitting next to him on a plane he and he's not like making a, little a speech. He fuzzy-wuzzy koala. Right. Yeah. Like, with I'm, his little eyebrows and his big glasses. And he takes off his tie and he puts he folds it up and he, you know, has his meal. And he looks like he could have been the third member of the two Ronnies. Oh, totally. They could have been three Ronnies. And he's flying by himself. There's no advisors or anything. When the flight ended at the yep. end, he got his little suitcase and trotted off by himself. And I thought, we live in a pretty good country when someone's so yeah. divisive can just walk around and be around. Look, we live in a good country where they think that they can sit me next to him. <laughs> like, but I'm sitting there and I think, well, I can't really say anything and it's not appropriate for me to say anything. If he mm. says anything at any stage, I'll be polite and whatever because this is not the forum. 
But about an hour in, I start getting really, really sick again. And I'm like, oh, God. So I go to the bathroom. I have to vomit. And then I have to go back and sit next to him. Like, And then, and he's so well presented and so polite. And yep. I'm such a wreck, you know. I'm yep. like, who am I to judge him? Look at him. <laughs> look at him. And look at me. How could I have ever judged <laughs> So I'm sitting there and I'm sitting there the whole time and I don't end up saying anything but I'm so sick at one stage that they give me uh, the, um, I don't know, they give you some sort of refreshing thing in your water that's meant to revitalise you really quickly or whatever if you can get it down. But if you can't get it down, you've suddenly just turned into a soda stream machine. Oh, Jesus. So like now I had to run to the, oh, it was the worst. It was the worst. Anyway, there's no kind of into that story other than I had a terrible flight. So you didn't talk to him at all? I didn't. I oh, didn't wow. feel, no, I just sat there. He watched his, you know, did his thing and I oh, watched see, a movie I or whatever. With Peter Costello, I was there and I'd got upgraded as well and then I was sitting there with my book and then Peter Costello sat beside me and I went, hello, and then I think we both went, huh? and then just went back right. to what we were reading going, I can't, and it was like from Brisbane to Melbourne or something, like uh-huh. it was two and a half hours. I thought, yeah. I can't just sit here for the whole two and a half hours and not, acknowledge him at all and there must have been someone else on the flight like I don't know some sports person or something or maybe it was tennis coming up and the hostie had asked us about tennis we both answered that and then sort of ha 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 to each other and I went back to my book and then he said you know we didn't cancel the glass house don't you oh he said that, <laughs> yeah he said that he? and I said I know that and then I can't remember I think I told him some jokes about Alexander Downer that made him laugh a lot no I didn't feel like John Howard and I would have anything that we like, maybe we've got to talk about cricket yeah. But, like, I mean, what would I have said to him? Even if no. he'd said, oh, you're not well. And I'm like, what, 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 well, lucky we're on a plane. They won't throw me overboard. <laughs> like, what can I? Like, I told a version of the aristocrats to Alexander Downer once. Oh, are you serious? <laughs> I'm serious. Was it just before he did the things that batter joke? Oh, that? <laughs> no. I'm Maybe not you're responsible the for that. No. No, I was up there, um, I think trying to, you know, one of the many times we've tried to lobby to there being no funding cuts to the ABC. Uh-huh. And I'd gone into him and I was like, hey, Korean, what left-wing calls are you up here for? No. And I don't know, it just kept going and going and going about how left-wing people didn't have a sense of humour. I went, all right, here you go then. <laughs> oh, my God. So I told him a version of the aristocrats. He thought it was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. I didn't make it really bad, but I didn't hold back completely either. Right, he probably enjoys it because he's like, yes, I know aristocrats and that is what they're like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, that, that's exactly why I chose that joke. And he did laugh a little bit more than what he probably should have. Uh, okay, so now take me uh, to this light, latter sort of part of, you know, what you've been doing the last kind of, you know, five years. Yeah. Like, you know, and how you're combining now sort of entertaining and studying yeah. and where you see that going and w- why you, you know, just, I mean, just explain, like, you know. Yeah, so, um, I mean, obviously I still perform and I still enjoy it, but I had got to a certain point where I thought, I wonder whether I really do want to do this for the rest of my life. Yeah. Can I imagine myself doing this when I'm 60? And I couldn't. No. And I think mostly because I wasn't finding it intellectually stimulating anymore. I felt that I had um, challenged myself to all of the things that I could challenge myself to and now everything felt like it was an iteration of something I'd done before. Uh Um, And that's not necessarily 
the case. I mean, there's always going to be something new, but I guess the new was becoming further and farther between. Right. Still earning a really good living, still, you know, getting to travel and do all of those things, but just wasn't really stimulated by it anymore. So I ran away to France for a while, which um, sounds very eat, pray, love. It was just the eight bit of it, really. Um, I went over there. So I spent eat cheese drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, eat cheese drink. Eat, eat cheese, eat cheese. <laughs> I ate a lot of cheese. That's my new book. Eat, eat cheese, eat more cheese. Yeah. <laughs> and drink. <laughs> so I did that. <coughs> and I thought that learning French would be intellectually stimulating enough. And like, yeah. I, when I throw myself into something, I really throw myself into yeah. something. So I had self-taught myself up to an advanced level before I went okay. there. And then um, I did end up being pretty fluent. Now, of course, I've forgotten it all because I'm doing a law degree and that is the only thing I've got room for in my brain. Came back, got back into the, you know, the comedy thing and the hosting thing and the performing thing and the voiceover thing and the acting thing and it still just it didn't feel like enough. And like I said, I was hosting panels where, you know, there were really important human rights lawyers and human rights advocates speaking. I thought, I just want to do something a bit more worthwhile. And a friend of mine who is a lawyer said, do a law degree. And I went, that is six years. I'm not, I'm, right. you know, I'm not doing something that's going to take six years at my age. That just seems an interminable about a, amount of time. Right. He said, no, no, it's only three years. It's postgraduate. It's easy. And then he lied to me. <laughs> and then he lied to me and said, you can easily do it and fit in all of your other work. Like, uh, it's not that onerous. Yeah. He lied to me. Well, that me. is a lie though, isn't it? Because yes. like the one thing that even I know about law degrees is they're pretty full on. Yeah. And it is very full. Normally, if you're combining, uh, like most people, when you hear people, are, like they're, they're studying law, but they're also doing some acting and stuff, they're the ones who end up becoming actors and comedians yeah, that's right. and not lawyers. Yeah, that's right. And you're trying to do it the other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're exactly. pulling the reverse degen. I am. I am. <laughs> I'm pulling the reverse degen. That's a funny way of putting it. <coughs> yeah. But it's great. And it, it is good doing it as. Um, a mature student, or as they call us, later lawyers, like we just forgot or something. Like we just forgot, got out of bed 20 years late. So Tell went, oh, me, shit, it was meant to be a law school. What is it like being an older person studying? Because I'm, fasc- <laughs> I'm fascinated by the idea of going back to study. Yeah. And we were talking just a little bit about this before we started, but um, I there's part of me that thinks I'd be heaps better at it because obviously I'm older and I understand how to work now and I understand what it is that I want to get out of the studies so that yeah. I would be able to you know, focus on that. But at the same time, as we all know, and uh, you know, when you said you were t- teaching yourself a language, the thing that we're always told is it's much easier to pick up languages when you're little. It's much easier to pick up all things like that yeah. to study. I wonder whether my brain is at a point now where you know, that I, wouldn't, I would be able to study. What were the challenges? What were the things that surprised you? Um, I think that the thing that surprised me was how ill-prepared I was for exams. Like, oh, more yeah. exams are a thing unto themselves anyway. And they're, they're called open book exams, but that means that basically you have to write your own book to take into the exams with you. So, like, you know, you've got two weeks to write three books for an exam and you go in there with 100 pages worth of notes for each one. 
um, because you need to be able to flick through them really quickly and, and answer all the questions. So it took me a long time to learn how to do that because I did an arts degree. I don't even remember whether I did exams <laughs> in my arts degree. Or if I did, I was probably drunk when I did them. Right. So this was a whole new thing for me to learn. Whereas the other people that I'm there with, the younger students, have already just done their undergraduate degree. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. So they're match fit. They've just come through and a lot of them have done science and commerce and economics and that kind of thing. So they have a bit more of an idea about how to do exams. Do they know you? Do, uh, is that Was that a thing? Do that people... was a thing. And then it wore off after yeah. about six months. Yeah, the novelty of that wore off. Yeah, I was nervous about that. But yeah, they got used to that. Now they don't care. Now I'm just the old person in the classroom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a rude shock too. Like I didn't think right. I was that old. But I'm closer to the age of their mothers than to them. Oh, I mean, so, I'm like that with much of my audience yeah. like these days. Like I have these conversations with these children who are younger than my shoes in my audience and I'm like, what am I talking to you about? But you're actually in an environment with them. Yeah. So what's that like? What are they like? What are younger people like? Tell me about the younger people, Corinne. What the are they like? The younger people assume I don't know anything about the modern music. Yeah, and how uh, do you? Oh, a little bit. Right. <laughs> Probably not as much as I should. But right. I freaking know who the Hilltop Hoods are. Oh, okay, somebody right. said, do you know who the Hilltop Hoods are? I went, yes. Yeah. Pretty sure I've got drunk with them on a plane. Yeah. Young hipster, I'm cooler than you. That's <laughs> how childish I am. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. No, one, the rudest shock I had was, you know, we're doing a group assignment and there's, you know, four of us there and we're all standing around the one computer proofing it at the end and fiddling around and getting it down to the word count. And we were talking about how that new U2 album had just infested all of our iPhones. And someone said, I, oh, I really like it. And I said, I don't know how you could like it. Like, they are shit now. They used to be awesome. Mm-hmm. And I, I said something, you know, I went on a bit of a riff about Joshua Tree and all of that stuff and how great they were and how I used to have a crush on the edge. And then I just sort of stopped because I realised everyone had gone silent. I went, yeah, when I had a crush on the edge, none of you were born. Right. They? they went... No, I don't. No. Just get back to proofing the essay. Shut the fuck yeah, up. Yeah, okay. So this is like when mum said that Keith Richards used to be hot. Okay, now I get it. Yes, <laughs> that is exactly what it's like. So I just have to accept that now. But in a, on another level, apart from I don't think I'm probably as good at exams as what the, um, the, the younger people are, are there. I think uh-huh. they're probably better at exams. But I do have some advantages when it comes to, you know, like, property law or trusts law or something. I just, I know what a mortgage is. Cause right, because you have one. Yeah. yeah, that's right. It's not a complicated theoretical yeah. concept to get my head around. Or when you're doing crim law, for example, a lot of them are very protected young people who've just come from a middle-class home sure. to uni and have never met a homeless person in their lives or have no understanding of how working-class people live, let alone right. really severely disadvantaged people. So... That life perspective is really useful when you're trying to put the law into context. Right. Um, yeah. I, yes. I mean, I can I don't imagine. Have to struggle to get my head around right. that. Whereas they have to struggle, and also it's confronting for them as well to find out the world isn't quite as lovely as what they thought it was. That's interesting to me because you are kind of reverse engineering it. You're like you. You yeah. see, you've you're old enough and well read enough and have been in the world enough and have met enough people from everyone from you know prime ministers down to refugees I mean like if you want to talk about the level of privilege and advantage in society you've bumped shoulders with all of them along the way and you are able to then to go okay well this is what they are doing and this is what they're doing and this is where the law applies here as opposed to these people who are learning it in theory to later apply to those situations when they yeah that's interesting to me Maybe that's a little bit like that idea of, you know, a young person listening to podcasts and learning about comedy. You still have to 
practically get to that yeah, situation right. to apply what you've learned yeah. before you'll truly understand yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can't teach anybody life experience. So. Oh, no, I'm teaching life experience. That's what I'm leaving comedy to teach life experience. I don't think anyone should go to those classes. Well, oh, I would have been experienced. <laughs> I've had, if there's one thing that I've had, Corinne, it's some life experience. Yeah, I don't know whether you should be teaching anybody that, though. That's that's what I'm saying. (laughs) No, that's a fair point. All right, well, we could bang on all day. This has been delightful, but this is about the time where we kind of have to stop. Uh, So, uh, tell me, oh, this is what I want to talk to you about. Are you going to run another book? Because I loved your columns on the hoopla in particular, and that's not ongoing anymore, the hoopla, is it? No, no. I thought they were some of the best stuff you've ever done. I like that environment where you had like that opportunity to kind of tee off on things and have an opinion and they were always well thought out and well kind of put together pieces. Thanks. I found them very compulsory reading and yeah, I, it right. made me kind of hope that maybe there would be another format or forum or even like a book or something where you could kind yeah. of talk a bit more about the world and what you think of the world yeah. but in kind of an amusing and, you know, easy to understand sort yeah. of way. Yeah. Oh, look, I would like to do that. Just at the moment, that's... Impossible. Right. And when the hoopla folded, I did look into getting a column somewhere else, and then it just became hard. You know, yep. editors don't call you back, and then they want to dick you around and not tell you how much they're going to pay you. And then I thought, I'm going to have to pitch every week, and I never had to pitch at the hoopla. I went, right. I just can't be bothered. That is too hard. Yeah. With it adds too else. much to it. It adds too much to I it. I have it's time to think hard. of it and write it barely. Yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> right. And the hoopla was a great experience because yeah. I didn't have to pitch. They would just let me write. Um, and yeah, I don't have time to do anything more complicated than that. But yeah, another book would be great, but it's finding the time to do it and the headspace to do it yeah. as well because studying law pretty much takes up all of your brain. There's not much room left there for anything else, um, let alone there's time to sit and ponder like you have to if you're writing a column or a book yeah. especially. You need a lot of time to sit and stare at the horizon. Yeah, it's very true. Uh, Corinne Grant, this has been fantastic. Uh, do you have places that you like people to find stuff that you do anymore? Do you have those things? Is there something you want to plug, basically, is what I'm asking? I'm trying to think what I'm doing next. I can't remember. I'm doing something at Victoria University in a few weeks called... All right, if you're at Victoria University. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not for... It's for the general public. Oh, okay. It's part of Law Week, uh-huh. and it's called How to Get Away with Murder. Oh, and nice. it's explaining... Um, the way that criminal law works in reality as opposed to how it works on television shows or why you might think that somebody who's very clearly guilty got off. This is the kind of panel that will tell you. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. They'll also have a copyright lawyer there to explain how they can use that title even though it's registered by the How to Get Away. No, no, no. No, no. You can't copyright a title. You're fine. You're fine. Yeah, look at that. Yeah. Look at that fancy. She, she that, proved at the end that she's got a little bit from of From my understanding, talking. I should just say, from my understanding of copyright law. Not legal advice. No, not legal advice. Uh, Corinne, it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.